Hello dear ones, it's uh, your boy Timmy C and this is an episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. You probably uh, didn't need me to say that in advance. Um, But today's episode is a live episode that uh, I recorded at Latitude Festival a couple of weeks ago and you'll be able to hear music thumping in the background as we recorded it sort of uh, late in the evening. It was good fun. And I, it's me chatting to Kerry Hudson. I don't know why I gave that in a sort of a weird up-talk inflection at the end. It was a really, really nice talk, uh, which you're just going to hear, basically. It was really nice to talk to her and then get to take audience questions afterwards, which is not normally a part of the show. Uh, I really, really liked talking to her. And we talked about her, well, her new non-fiction book, uh, Lowborn, but really just her experience of coming to writing and there's been you know there's been a really great buzz around her latest book and she's just an awesome person as it turns out as well so uh that was really really nice and it's got loads of great bits of writing advice and was just uh just a, pl- a pleasure to talk to and really engaging and it was a lovely experience obviously uh being live um there's, you know, they they sent me about about fifteen different audio tracks uh, from all the different ways they'd been recording it. None of which I think I think you know raised it beyond my ability to uh, edit in any kind of coherent or intelligent way. N- nonetheless, I've done my best. I think the sound quality is pretty good, um, uh, but I've you know I've mixed it all down into a uh, into a mono track because I know. Uh, some of you who maybe don't have, you know, perfect uh, dichotomous hearing, is that what I want to say? Basically, if you, you know, hear better in one ear, I didn't want to do all sorts of fancy mixing and make it difficult for you to listen to us. So um, that's why it's all mixed down to mono after they gave me essentially surround sound. <laughs> it's just so weird to me that I, you know, record a chat with two people and I get an, they did an audio setup more appropriate for like a Kiss Stadium gig, right? Anyway, it was really, really nice. And actually, Latitude were wonderful. It was really fun to be there. So I hope you enjoy listening to this one. Um, there's there's a link in the show notes to um, Kerry's books. If after listening to this, you fancy checking them out, you can do that. And of course, there's links to my books because uh, I just... I, I, would like you to read them and let me know what you think and thank you to everyone actually who's been doing that and been letting me know that you've been picking up my work i'd really really appreciate it i'm not going to waffle on any longer i don't really need to preface this you can just hear us just talk you can hear me uh fluff the intro uh, as i go into it now normally i do that all the time like i'm not a very slick talker but normally i just re-record it right in fact I would say these these intros, right? I often manage to clock up like between four and six full starts where I go, "Hello, welcome to that's just me, right? I, I I'm not super naturally good at a lot of things anyway uh, because it was live. I couldn't really do that to the audience, so. Um, Get, there's a little peek behind the curtain that Tim Clare, what he's actually like versus the uh, production wizardry 
that makes me sound vaguely coherent. Normally I just fix it all in post. And, that, you know, this is a show about editing, right? So I should practice what I preach. Anyway, I haven't edited this one at all. This is just the live session. Um, gets pretty emotional towards the end. And actually the only other caveat, gosh, I've just remembered, is <laughs> I think I think partly in an, uh, an attempt to uh, impress Kerry because I really wanted her to be my friend, um, we started talking about the publishing industry and we started gossiping and... Um, kind of like I think some legit complaints but I, I think I launched into a little bit of a broadside about publishing being full of posh people and I just want to say I know lots of very nice people who work in publishing who've been very supportive to me uh, this isn't me this is partly me groveling um so I'm not uh sent to Coventry and cast out of the fold um but I just, it would be un. I, I certainly make some generalizations, which, although they have some basis in truth, are uh, not ref entirely reflective of, you know, on when cooler heads prevailing later. I thought, Tim, did you have to kind of go on about. You just seem a bit, just seem a bit mean spirited. I think there are some inequalities in publishing. I agree with all of that. I agree with everything that Kerry said. I just don't want to make it sound like I'm making mean spirited broadsides everyone in publishing because essentially it erases the contributions of a lot of people who don't fit that description who are working very hard within publishing okay phew as my caveat out of the way i hope you enjoyed this as much as i did this is me chatting to author kerry hudson My name's Tim Clare. Welcome to a th Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a podcast about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show here today, we have three main goals, three central planks to our manifesto. Plank the first, to help you write more. Plank the second, to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those three things. To that end, I talk about writing and I sometimes chat to other authors on the podcast. And today I am um, probably, uh, I'm feeling, you know, extremely excited and slightly sycophantic and just so made up to be chatting to the uh, author, Kerry Hudson. Hello, Kerry. Hello. Hi, uh, everyone. <laughs> um, so, uh, hello. Yeah. Um, so we're oh, live, hello. Yeah, hi. <laughs> we're live at Latitude Festival. We're in the um, forest uh, section. It's like things are moving towards the evening and we're going to talk about books and stories and all this. And so, um, Kerry, I realise it's a slightly weird setup to be in a tent in a kind of like artificial living room with microphones, with a kind of globe between us, with a, a kind of Carlsberg on it. I've tried to open the globe to see if there's any booze in it. There's no <laughs> booze, which is my first TripAdvisor bit of feedback. There's booze in there. Amazing, thank you. Um, cool, so we might at some stage, if you see me um, hitting the booze, it's been um, seven years, uh, seven years on the weekend of latitude actually since I've drunk, so if I, you see me diving into it, um, the gig is going badly. Call my sponsor. Um, Kerry, the first thing I wanted to ask is what's one of the first stories you can remember telling? 
Oh, what an interesting question. Um, so I came to writing really late. Well, not really late. I was 27. So <laughs> I now realize that was quite young. But um, but I guess like I came from, I come from like a family. I come from a matriarchal clan of fishwives from Aberdeen. And so we just passed around our stories around the table, getting more and more elaborate and unkind and furious <laughs> as they sort of passed around from generation to generation. So a lot of the time it was me repeating um, stories that people had told me. So my grandma's favorite story was, it involves the C word. Is everyone okay with that? Is there any, there's a little girl at the back. So I'm just gonna say C word instead of the actual word. But my grandma worked as a filleter in the fish houses and um, she was being harassed by one of the women there. And so she told me, this is when I was a kid, that she held the knife to the woman's throat and said, the woman who called her a C word, thank you. And um, she held the knife to the woman's throat and said, I'm a good C word, I'm a clean C word. And uh, I give a C word for no C word. All right. Um, and then I went around school <laughs> just repeating that like a like it was like an amazing anecdote. I mean, to be fair, that is an, amazing, an amazing anecdote. anecdote. <laughs> like I don't like like at, at, at school, like the kids at my school were like just telling, were just going, I m- my dad's a ninja and like things like that. They were just like m- like blatantly. Stories that didn't even make sense. I know Dennis the Menace. Like, that was their stories. You're the, that's an awesome story. Straight out of the mouth of seven-year-old babes. I got less good reviews from teachers than I have from you, I've got to be honest. But, uh... but, that's, that's, but that's perfect, right? Because, like, that's knowing your audience immediately. Like, I, I was often making... I got... There was a point in school where I realised I could tell the kind of stories... There are stories that the teachers disapproved of. And then I just had this horrible, like... It was like a moment of like betrayal of myself. I used to write stories that were just about uh, sort of nonsense and people being killed and wars and stuff and, and then dragons and things like that. And the teachers would go, Tim, this is, oh, I'm not really sure I like this. And then I remember vividly in year sort of five or six, um, I wrote a poem and it, it was this, it started, a, it, start, oh God, it started, a battery hen is dead again. <laughs> Another person starves. And all because of the greed of one animal. Us, right? And like, there's a bad rhyme. There's so many bad things about it. But I read it out and like the, the t- my teacher was like, this is amazing, Tim. You've got to read this out in assembly. <laughs> and I read it out and I could see all the teachers like nodding approvingly and all my classmates like visibly losing their will to live. And I was like, no, this is... Like I'm appeasing like the people in power but like the stories that kids love and share are the ones that the teachers go, come now, see me, <laughs> right? That's an amazing story. Do you, think, um, do you think you were influenced by like all the storytellers around you as you were growing up? Or, do you, or, or I mean, is, is calling it storytelling sort of uh, giving it, putting it at a level that you weren't, conscious of to say oh you do you think you were developing the art of narrative oral oral storytelling um not until i had to do panels and then i really rolled out that oral storytelling (laughs) a lot (laughs) but no i mean i came from i just came from people who loved to talk and they all wanted one-upmanship and everything sort of mutated and moved um but you know i i came from like a really working class background so I didn't really understand that that writing was a job. I just thought that was basically shooting the shit. That's a acceptable swear word, right? Um, so <laughs> you know, I just didn't I just didn't realize that I was effectively storytelling. But I was pretty imaginative, you know. Like I've always had a gob on me. I like to chat, and I feel like 
I often, when I teach people who have never written before, I say narrative is like absolutely imbued in everyday life. We're all telling stories all the time. We're all creating characters all the time, often with ourselves <laughs> more than anything else. Um, and so, um, And so I guess it was always part of my life to like, spin life into something a bit more interesting or magical or adventurous than the actual life I was living which was often actually pretty pretty grim when I was young so I a lot of people authors I've talked to um there's someone in their life who's either like either a mentor or what I've started to think of as a kind of permission figure mm. like for Inuit Elms when I chatted to him it was like uh, his basketball teacher yeah Inuit's Inuit so I know like, we love you yeah, like, no right like, <laughs> yeah. that's how I feel about him so much and, like he's such a great great guy and every moment of chatting to him I was just like feeling correctly I think that I was in the presence of like loveliness and greatness but mm. do you you were sort of basically of the opinion that like this storytelling lark is something that other people do novels are almost like meteorites that kind of like have been recovered they're not like (laughs) created by humans when was the point where you got a sense of permission when you got a sense of like i'm allowed to write or tell a story um, so I, I read all the time. So um, for the the many people <laughs> I imagine don't know the the circumstances of my upbringing, I moved around the country a lot with my single mum. We lived a lot in homeless hostels or B and Bs or council estates, um, but we always had access to the library. So I read really prodigiously. But I was telling someone the other day, I had no idea where books came from. Like you said, like they were just sort of beamed down onto the library shelves <laughs> for my enjoyment. Um, and it took me. So I did. I did write a little bit. I remember going to college and a teacher saying to me like, uh, oh, you're you're really quite good at this. You know, you could you could give it a go. And me being like, I'm sure I had like a horrible hangover. And, you know, it was just like, shut the fuck up. Um, is this just too sweary? Are you going to have to... No, 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 no. You're going to have to bleep out I, half the... I've not swore... I swear every episode prodigiously... I get emails saying, Tim, like, I really like your writing advice, but can you put less diarrhea jokes in your show? Oh, you don't stop swearing. Do and I'm like, so I've, <laughs> I've wound it in. I've wound it in. Recently, I was like on a, a thread on Twitter. He said so- more swearing. The guy at the back. Huh? You want diarrhea jokes? That's Tim. That's Have you, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't do it. Although I will say, like, has anyone noticed that there's a paella? paella a, a, I called it paella, but my dad, who's like a real language snob, makes me say paella. But there's a paella place over there called Pyrrhea. <laughs> why? Why did someone? At what point did someone go? Well, look, we want to like we've got Spanish cuisine here, but um, we want and we need a name for our stall. We want a sense of like it, it's just flowing out of us, flowing out as a great tide of of food. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you as you were talking about going to the library and start and 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 so you had someone, a teacher, tell you. You can write, and you were just like the mentor kind of said, "Hey, kid, you got it." And you and were I was like, like "No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm going. I'm going down to my local indie nightclub to get really, really drunk." Um, so, um, so I didn't really. I, I mean, I, I won. So in my in my late twenties, I had a, a short story competition. It was five hundred words, and. Um, miraculously I won it and I won a thousand pounds and I was like yeah I know right the most money I've ever earned per word by the way and um and I was Was like your first competition that was my first competition and um so I know competition I won 10 pounds (laughs) from Jeffrey Archer who sponsored the competition that's dirty money that's real dirty money (laughs) 
<laughs> um, but um, and so so that was really. But without that, like I really don't think I would ever. I was working for a, a AIDS NGO at the time, and so I liked my work, you know. And I was just kind of looking for something creative. But without that, that winning that competition, I don't think I would have ever have thought that it was possible. And then I got an agent really quickly because of that. Who was still my agent, Juliet Pickering, who's amazing, um, and got a publishing deal not too long after that. So for me, without like really like massive amounts of luck, the right people at the right time, um, I was kind of pitching the right book, which was a sort of working class experience book before they were very popular, because um, they're really popular now. Um, <laughs> um, so so I was really really lucky. But even now, I still you know I mean I think it's it's really common for most writers to suffer from sort of imposter syndrome. If you're a woman, even more so. Um, this is my Lowborn's my third book, but I've written four books, so my next one's already written and coming out with Chateau and Windus. Um, and even now, I'm like, you know, is this okay? Like, should I be doing it? And really, the main reason I do is absolute stubbornness because I'm really pissed off with working class women not having a voice, and um, it's sheer bloody mindedness <laughs> that I keep writing. I, I w- I'd really like to. There's a, cu- there's a couple of things. I'm now sort of my brain is now splitting off between a, a bunch of questions I want to ask, and the first one is you talked about. Um, you talked about feeling imposter syndrome, and I wondered if we could just drill down into that a little bit because people sort of talk about it a lot, and a lot of writers we met like we mention it and we talk about it. Loads of writers talk about it and also then like undercut it with a joke, as if there's something frivolous or embarrassing about it. And yet I know that it causes people real psychic pain. Uh, psychic in the sense of psychological, not in like like having a kind of mind battle with Yuri Geller. And, and like, but even now, right, I'm trying to make a joke about it because I feel uncomfortable. But like, can you, can you talk a little bit about what it, because people will just go. Like, I know, like I see your stuff and I see how it's received and I read it and I, I, I just, it seems to me like you couldn't possibly be sincere in thinking that you weren't a brilliant writer. And I'm not being sycophantic, well I probably am, but like what, I'm, what I want to ask, I suppose what I'm trying to drill down into is like, can you just go for people who are not writers who will be listening going mm. you've had you've had a bunch of books published you know you're able to t- you're talking about it now you're an author how you you must be being sort of modest when you say i i've got this kind of survivor guilt where i feel like i was lu- i was lucky i dodged the bullets and i got to this place can you can you well would you be able to talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, to be honest, I'm kind of grateful for it. I really never want to be the sort of arsehole who's like, I deserve everything. And I actually, especially for women, I think that's actually a really valuable standpoint. But for me, I think my my craft comes out of that sort of desire to do better and to strive a little bit harder. Um, and, um, you know, and the truth is also that I'm someone who, who navigates a world that isn't mine. You know, the publishing industry is really middle class. It's really, really middle class. I can't tell you how many panels I've done where it's me and three other Oxbridge people. So me who left school at 15 and three other Oxbridge people. And it is impossible not to feel different or othered in that environment. But I do feel more than ever that... I have a right to tell my story and that my story has value. Um, but I totally recognize how much luck was involved. And I think when you're from the outside in, it can seem that somehow like you're not talented enough or you're not doing something right. 
I'm for sure that's sometimes true, you know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pretending that everyone's writing like Pulitzer sometimes, Prize or anything. Sometimes <laughs> a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> but, but, like, a lot of it is luck. And people don't want you to know that. So another thing is that nobody's honest about how collaborative novels are. I have, like, an agent who works with me, and I have an editor who works with me. I go through seven drafts. Um, they're really collaborative. They deserve to have their byline on there as long as, as well as I do. But nobody wants to admit that because it destroys the myth of, like, the the sort of, you know, genius writer. Um, so... One person clapped, the rest of you misgaged the mood. Think... That's fine. We can, we can work Thank a mis- to that mixed ability room. No, I'm glad that one person... Uh, 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 no, like, so... I suppose where, where I'm starting from, like, my way of getting into this is my mum, her dad worked at the ga- at Western Supermare Gasworks and she passed the 11 plus, I guess it was at the time, and went to a school where it was the only working class people were her and one other girl whose dad was a chimney sweep and she said nobody else would talk to them like she didn't have any mm. other friends nobody would nobody would talk to her because she was work- and my dad's side of the family on the other hand uh, my grandfather's name was Lawson uh, his cousins are Clayton Grayson <laughs> and you know like and Damon like that was the that's that side and I grew up with like an in a couple of people had told me that I'm the most class conscious person they've ever known because my mum was constantly aware of that Mm. divide and that feeling of like being judged by my dad's parents which she was totally right she like they were being I didn't know at the time I didn't get it as a kid they were being assholes to her I wonder if you and I felt that thing if you said in publishing circles where I'm just like I know these people are being perfectly nice but my world isn't their world and how do you like some people are going to say, well, like, why, why, what is, what is the thing driving you? What is the, that bloody mindedness? Because it sounds like you're just like being in this situation where there's all these kind of like Oxbridge arseholes and you're allowed <laughs> to be there. Not um, all uh, Oxbridge people are arseholes, by the way, but many are. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, but I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what is driving you then in that kind of like bloody mindedness? What is the kind of thing that's making you go, I'm going to fucking show you? Um, first of all, I, I love writing and I will say that I'm pretty good at it. I'm not saying that like I deserve I deserve like success any more than anyone else who hasn't been able to get published who's very talented. I do think it's a real sort of pot shot game, but I'm a good writer. I think that's fair to say after all of this time um, and it's a real privilege to write. Um, I also think that like, um, I don't think writers should have to write for a sense of responsibility, but the world is full of holes and falling to bits and we're just toasting our marshmallow on the bonfire of Britain at the moment and it's really amazing to have any sort of platform where people will listen to you so Lowborn, my latest book which is about growing up in poverty in the UK it's my first non-fiction, was put on the MP's uh, summer recess reading list <laughs> and a Tory MP messaged me and said I read your book and it made me think um, he didn't elaborate what he thought about <laughs> it but or what, what the noise <laughs> Was made his brain made when he was thinking, yeah. probably like the kind of grinding of kind of like brass cogs. I feel a bit bad because he sent it to me in good faith, like as a private message on Facebook, and I've just ruled out as a way to mock Tories for like for a whole month now. But, um, but you know, so actually, like, what a privilege! And I'm angry, you know, I worked at NGOs because I really wanted to like try to do anything to make the things that I find frustrating in society a bit better. Writing is a really amazing way to do that. Um, 
And um, so that's kind of the things that, that does it. And also because I want to change that. I cannot tell you how many times I've gone to literary parties and people look me up and down and say, you'd never guess, you know. Um, by which they mean they'd never guess that I was like working class. <laughs> and I'm like, Are is you this... fucking serious? Yeah. What? Like, I'm oh, like, but very sweet, you know. Like they, they genuinely think they're offering me a compliment, and I'm like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seriously? Happens all the time. Like I've, I write about it in my book. I'm like, sorry, it, I know it must be like <laughs> I know it must be really annoying, like for me to be so surprised. Like clearly, it hasn't. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't go to many literary parties, and when I do, I kind of look like I've spent the last three years living wild in the woods. I'm like, obviously, like, I found a, a, like a box of like uh, like frazzles or something that I've been surviving of. I was like, well fed at the time. But like, but I can, but no one's ever said anything like that to me. That's unbelievable. Well, what are they expecting? Like a miner's uniform? Like, I just don't know. But anyway, so, but you know, and I want to, I want are to you shave. <laughs> coming in in overalls are you, and like are you missing my, yeah, are you missing my sooty cheeks or my tin of special brew? Yeah, I won't, I won't belt. deny I don't hit up the free bar pretty heavy. But so would you if you had to navigate that um so so i really wanted to like shape and influence the the industry that we work in and so that's another reason it's a load of reasons basically i really like writing i also hate working in office i really like pajamas and i really like toast and i only like speaking to people about 10 percent of the time and so writing is also ideal for those reasons there's a lot of reasons you know yeah, it's nice you <laughs> there's a lot of benefits to, we get to like live in a service <laughs> lift and then occasionally like when it gets too scary in there emerge chat to loads of people and then go, okay, I'm bored of humans now and then close the door of the service lift and get back it and eat the toast. Yes. It's really isn't it nice, delightful? Isn't it? Um, so I want to talk to you about um, stories that you've loved, like authors or books. Because you said you were reading loads mm. when you were growing up and I'd like to just jump back to that because um, what were the stories that you were... Can you remember any stories like then or now that you've read that have just transported you or you've gone, fuck, like... Or ones that made you like absolutely green with envy, like shit. I wish I'd that. <laughs> I've blocked those all out from my mind, like fresh <laughs> trauma. Um, I so I went to. Uh, we were always kind of at the mercy. We grew up in like very small towns, so in North Lanarkshire or Northumbria or uh, Great Yarmouth. I spent I spent my teens in Great Yarmouth. Yay! Um, I don't know if they were actually cheering the bungo, bungos, but we'll cheer Great like Yarmouth. Any small town in Britain, if you say a gig, name it. In fact, any small town, you, uh, British town that you name in the world. I was in Beijing and I went on stage <laughs> and said, I'm from a small town called Porter's Head. And one person went, Wee! Uh. And I was, like, I was like, shut up. And they were like, my mum lives on West Hill. And I was like, no! It will follow you to the end. Any small town will follow you to the end of the year. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I was at the, the sort of the mercy of like my local library. So I just read indiscriminately. I know Jeanette Winterson very sensibly and meticulously worked her way through the Dewey Decimal. But I was just like literally Point Horror, Mary Higgins Clark, Charles Dickens. Um, the first time I read a book that really had a huge impact on me was Roddy Doyle, because it was the first time that I ever saw something like my community reflect it was Paddy Clark ha 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 and it's the first time I've seen something that was like my community reflected back at me in a way that I just never experienced before even though it was a man even though it was set in like the 40s 50s I guess um sorry Brody if I've aged you there <laughs> prematurely um so and then the other one was Toni Morrison because obviously like a lot of what she talks about is uh, to the marginalized female experience and I, I was you know I was like 16 or 17 I didn't even know I was 
experiencing like that sort of patriarchal structure but whatever she sent to my brain I I understood on this like visceral level that she was talking about what it was to be a woman and how incredibly hard it was going to be and how I had to find a way to sort of overcome that um so they were and then I really the biggest sort of change for me was that I discovered the women's press um, I learned to recognise the women's press spines in the local library, so they were stripy. They had a little, they had a little iron, which I do take a bit of issue with as their as their logo. But then I found, <laughs> then I basically had easy access to like really, really amazing feminist literature all the time. And so I just, I like Great Yarmouth Library which is an amazing amount of women's press books, and I totally just like read my way right the way through them. It sounds like uh, there was a, a point at which those things were kind of. It's almost like seeing, see, like seeing a beacon go on somewhere else, and knowing that you're not alone. That someone yeah. else thinks like you, because like before, sounds <laughs> like an old fogey, but people don't sort of remember that like before the internet was like a big thing, like y it was possible to be quite like isolated in terms of communities and stuff. And now I go to schools, and there's like dozens of subcultures within the schools of kids like there's three kids who are into this like really obscure kind of anime there's like lgbt kind of weak walls on on the walls of the schools and there are kids who can be like that and sometimes be out because they know on the internet there's this huge community and everyone else knows that community exists but like before that these things can be like you cannot know that the world there's a world out there of that you're not alone right is that, does that yeah yeah no totally and also for me you know like I was growing up in like often because we moved around so much the worst the worst house and the worst council estate in any given town and all of a sudden I understood that there was this like whole world out here like if I could just get myself beyond like the city limits you know there was like there was something for the taking there it like my my especially as I got into my teens and I really understood how bad my situation was my world narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and, narrowed and but pushed those horizons open again so I remember reading Amistad Mopar's Tales of the City and being like I'm gonna go to San Francisco and when I was 18 I went to America because I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and I wanted to go travel through America eating apple pie and ice cream for my dinners you know and um, so it gave me this sort of insight into it which you just don't have if you grow up in a in a society that reflects back on you that you're gonna stay in your town you're gonna do a shitty job um, and that's all you're worth so can you I, I wondered if you so would mind I'm, I'm kind of conscious of I'm asking you stuff that you get asked uh, a, a lot and if it's fine to just say I don't want to fucking talk about this anymore <laughs> but I've sort of really struggled with like how middle class the f the novel has historically been as a form and how even when we look at like writers who are sometimes like categorized as they're writing about the working class experience and then you go and you Martin read Martin Amos. Yeah, exactly. And you go go and read I was reading sort of like in the Jago, this kind of like book about um uh, like Shoreditch and it's supposed to be this book about like what real the working class experience at the at the beginning of the twentieth century. And it is just this morass of like um or like inconsistently uh phoneticized speech within a narrator that's like and then the dread fellow turned <laughs> and like where the narrator is is like this anthropologist who's gone to visit mm. this series of comic grotesques and i and Roddy Doyle doesn't feel like that because it's all 
in the voice of the characters. The the small bits of narrative that we see, the tiny sparing bits, are mostly dominated by the voice. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about voice and about ripping that kind of like middle class anthropologist heart out of the novel when you're writing <laughs> that's a nicely violent image um i mean i don't i mean i suppose like i'm i'm you know i'm kind of in some ways ironically like my sort of very complicated and traumatic childhood became the making of me you know it allowed me to write books and it allowed me to express myself and change things and so that's that's not not many people from my background get to do that and so I'm incredibly grateful for it. I often say, I mean, I'm not, I would say it and I say this, I shouldn't really say it because <laughs> it doesn't make me sound very good, but I'm not really a writer very in charge of my craft, you know. What comes out is what tends to come out. I've learned over the years how to craft things and make things better and more technical and structural or I'm better at like understanding the, the nuts and bolts of technical writing than I was. When I started, when I wrote Tony Hogan, I wrote it in six months um, like the character was drumming on my back and then it pretty much went up to my agent and then I edited it with my editor but um, you know I'm a very instinctive writer so when I write what I hear is the voices of the people I grew up with and it's very conversational I think you know a lot of people say that they feel especially with my memoir Lowborn people have a real sense that they kind of know me and what's happened is we sat down for a drink um, and I think that's because I'm I'm not a trained writer in the same way that lots of people do MAs now do I just feel, sit do, down and I write like, like do you does that feel like a pressure on you to um perform I I'm not suggesting that you're being defensive but like you mentioned Kerouac who just like yeah. did a load of speed and then wrote on the road <laughs> on like some wallpaper and just people don't go well yeah <laughs> people don't go well the thing about Kerouac is he never did an MA and he wasn't really a trained writer mm. they go oh he's a genius oh it just poured out of him it would never no one would ever think to have to defend Kerouac and go well you understand he's like it was an instinct instinctive writer and he I mean, it didn't seem to me in his later life to be a very nice fellow, so probably wouldn't have, <laughs> he would have just gone, well, it, you know, I'm sure. Any, anyway, but do you feel like there's a pressure <laughs> that you have to sort of apologise or like, because why can't it be a positive that you're like going, I like wrote this stuff because the words are in me and because I got a vicinity with language instead of going like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't like talk about, I mean, Mikhail I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but like, why can't you talk about like Russian structural theorists and stuff? Otherwise, it's not real writing or it's a kind of fluke. Because that's the first time I've heard of Russian structuralist theories. I, I mean, that's, I why, that's why up. I'm not talking about know. that. Like, I, I'm but just putting together, <laughs> cobbling together stuff like a just kind of words. like pro. Um, no, I, I personally don't. But, you know, I do. So um, like a lot of writers, I do a lot of teaching. Um, I'm actually, I will say, pretty good at it, I think. Like people who do my classes like them and they like them specifically because... I do it in a way that sort of is is very personal and sort of is more about why they're writing and why they've chosen to write that and how they can access the things that are difficult rather than here's your here's your narrative arc and how are you going to hit all those points. Um, so I don't feel, I mean, I, I suppose I'll always feel, you know, I left school at 15, my highest qualification is still a BTEC in performing arts. As you can see, that's worked out great for me. Um, <laughs> so... I will always, there will always be a little part of me that's like a little bit self-conscious about that. I think it's just natural. But obviously, like now I've published three books and two of them won prizes. And so it's slowly, even even I am having to accept that maybe it's, it's you know, the way that I write is just, it works for me. It wouldn't work for everyone and definitely it limits me. Like I'd really like to write, for instance, a thriller, but I don't think I've got it in me, you know, like 
if I write if I write a thriller of oven oven chips and awkward sex and a sad seaside town, um, and that's kind of you know what comes out. So, can are you able to talk? A I, I, I'm going to go on a little bit into that's a really nice point to start talking about. I guess the the craft of writing and like how 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 you get people to get these stories out of them. But before I do, I was just wondering if I could ask. Um, are you able to talk, say anything about your new book? Is it a novel? Is that? It's a novel. Yeah, I wrote it. I wrote it over a year. So I had a lovely year of traveling around the world, going to various cities, and just writing a book. It was the nicest thing in the world. Um, I can't really, I can't really talk too much about the plot because I'm pretty sure I'm going to rip it all up and start again. Really? So it's not, it's not been sort of set in stone. Oh no, it was. I mean, it was being bought by my publisher. It's coming out in a few years. Um, but I'm pretty sure that for me now, with lots of time left, like to to analyze what I'm doing, I know that I'm going to have to change it quite a lot. But it's a it's a feminist story um, about all the things that women are expected not to say, all the uh, roles we're expected to perform, and all the various ways that society punishes us for not fulfilling exactly the role that is expected of us. Um, uh, so yeah, and it takes in like a, a various uh, sort of various sort of settings: so Vietnam and uh, Buenos Aires and Berlin and Budapest. So um, so I got to do lots of nice stuff with setting, which is kind of one of the things that I love doing in writing. Um, so that'll be coming out. And then I've got, I've, or know what I'm going to start writing next, um, which I can't talk about because um, basically <laughs> it's such a good idea. I'm scared someone will steal it. That's the truth. Um, but I'm going to start doing that in a, a week or so. So oh, awesome. not you, not you. I'm not worried you will. But uh, I, mean, I, I, I mean, like, I, I, I <laughs> my idea of a good, good idea is like, Oh my gosh! Like my idea, of, unless unless it's like you've had an idea for a really cool trap in like a a, a, a Dungeons and Dragons dungeon, How it did I would you know? steal that. I know, like I'd be like, you like, okay, so the heroes go in and it starts filling with like acid. I'd be like, I'm stealing that. But like otherwise, I'd be like, well, that sounds good, but it sounds like it'd be more effort than I could be bothered to put in, and uh, I probably will mess it up anyway. Um, so ha when you're talking to people about getting their stories out how do you do that because like i just want to say like my interest in this is that i have really struggled with procrastination as a writer i struggle with self-loathing i've got a really bad anxiety disorder that means i'm constantly going is this dreadful am i an awful person blah 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 and i can't and i'm constantly having to fight that so i'm often like amazed and astounded and kind of walk up to writers who get anything produced at all with a kind of a kind of like pathetic <laughs> reverence like wow how did you how do you write without hating yourself but when you're <laughs> encouraging but also because you're encouraging other people to do it i guess i'm asking how do you get people to start bringing their stories out when they've got we've got all those voices in our head saying who are you to be writing who the hell wants to read mm. this are you experienced story other stories aren't like this story that you're you're writing you don't know anyone in the publishing industry. It's all random anyway. You just make yourself look stupid. How do you start coaxing the people through a phalanx of often not entirely irrational thoughts in their head? I don't think I've ever heard the word phalanx before. So <laughs> thank you for a festival first. <laughs> um, um, I, I basically say you just have to, it really has to matter to you, you know? Like, what do you feel compelled to write about? Like, what is the thing that... That, that feels urgent to you and it's often the thing that's scary to write about I, I meet so many writers that, right? that's the thing that like I can write about like a load of bullshit like if you said can you write a heist with like Donald Duck people in Donald Duck masks like robbing a bank 
uh, that's full of uh, cheese. I could do that easy because I don't <laughs> have any emotional contact to that. If you said, can you write about being anxious or about like weird, tiny little things of the heart, that's terrifying to me. How do we get through that? I mean, I always say the first draft is for you and the second draft is for other people. Write it for yourself. I'll also say it's no secret, but it's always worth stating the publishing industry is um, very uh, fickle, you know, like so So even I'm three books in, I've got another book to come. It's more than possible I'll never be published again because the publishing industry is fickle. I earn less, a lot less now than I did when I worked as a project manager for NGOs, you know, like you're not in it for the glory, particularly you're in it because you feel the need to communicate and write something and something's important to you um so the first draft is just for you i once heard someone call uh your inner critic that voice saying you're no good why is your spelling so bad um that it was called shit fm and he said just turn off shit fm <laughs> you know just just turn it off and write your book um and i think that's amazing and also like the biggest thing i think is that if you want to write a book i think you're like eighty thousand words is the average novel length and you're like well that just sounds impossible but if you break, like I tell people to break it down into 200 words sections, just say you're going to sit down and write 200 words of your story, like do a little bullet point plan where you're like, this is how it starts. These are the things that happen and this is how it's going to end. Nothing complex. And then write that in 200 words. And I mean, that that's how I wrote my books. You know, it doesn't, when you put it like that, it seems kind of like painting by numbers, but it works. And again, it demysticizes the idea that it's like, you know, a writer toiling away for years. You know, it's workmanlike, I guess. I want to ask about, you talked about, this was one of the other sort of like threads that I saw uh, sort of splitting off in front of me. When you talked about writing being a collaborative process and how many other people are involved in it mm -hmm. and this kind of myth of the lone writer. Um, at the same time, you've been talking about how the publishing industry is like hugely like upper middle class, how there's all these kind of pressures and there's readers are fickle and there's all these other things. It takes a lot of trust to have a collaborative relationship and yet we have this industry that maybe doesn't, you know, is, is populated by a, a certain type of person with a certain type of background. How do you marry those two things so you get to stick to what's true to you? Because these are things that are incredibly important to you in the story. Mm. And yet you are kind of then handing them out to other people and saying, this is really important to me tell me what shit about it do you know what I mean that's crazy <laughs> yeah, no, right totally. I'd never thought of the editorial process of saying tell me what shit about it but that is absolutely what it is um, the best advice I, so mine first goes to uh, my editor Julia and the best advice I ever heard about getting an, an agent was um, think about how they're going to be when it's going badly not when it's going well when nobody wants to buy your book when you haven't produced anything for five years will they still be in your corner buying you a piece of cake and saying I really believe in you your work is good um, and Juliet's been my agent for 10 years she's on maternity leave I miss her very much come back Juliet um, she's coming back in September though and I've had the same editor for 10 years as well and Becky doesn't come from a, an even slightly similar background from me she is very middle class I think she'd be okay with me saying that um but she understands that that what I have is an authentic point of view and so um 
And so she respects it. She completely respects it. You know, she. Have you ever told her, like, oh, oh Becky, you'd never know you're middle class? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did have one of my copy editing notes was, um, it was, uh, did you mean, did you mean dick here and not cock? <laughs> and I was like, no, I meant cock. They're they're seventeen year olds, like schoolgirls. This is this is the word they use. Um, but like, so so I mean, often it's just about it's kind of standing your ground. It's easier, I think, for me actually because my my perspective is relatively uh, unique in publishing. So people tend to trust me, you know, I'll just be like, actually, this is really the way I need to write this for all these reasons. And that's really listened to. But I find out, so my publishers chat in Windows who are a small, small imprint, but in Random House. So I found a really amazing imprint, an amazing editor and an amazing agent. And again, that was just luck. You know, I could have ended up with someone who didn't understand my work, but I got lucky with Becky. How, I, I, You've talked about, and I think very accurately, about publishing being like elements of it being a bit of a crapshoot, but at the same time, um, you stick into your guns and all of these. I, I want to know what is kind of keeping you going because it sounds like. Oh, the money. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, not the money. Right? <laughs> but like, because people listening and stuff, it sounds like it's quite challenging. It sounds like it's quite difficult. It's a bit scary. Um, you're having to put your heart on the line. You're doing all of these things. And I'm just wondering. And look, I'm uh, again. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm scratching my own itch here. I'm also going. I feel really scared when I put my stuff out there. I sometimes wonder why am I am I too am I too weird? Am I too you know like because you're putting yourself. It feels like you, it's not yourself, but it feels sometimes like it is. How do you negotiate? Especially when you've now put out a memoir where, to a certain extent, and it's a reflection of you doing it well and you doing your job right. People go, oh, you're my mate now. Oh, we we've hung out. You came around my house and said I got a real I got a story to tell you, and we got through like four bottles of red wine and had a really long chat. And I feel like I know you really well. But now it's like the morning after where you like wake up after the sleepover and you're having breakfast and you're going maybe I shouldn't have said all that stuff. Like I'm wondering, like how do you how have you navigated that? Because it feels like it must be like pretty rough emotional seas. Not. You know, for any author, I think, mm. who's, like, actually do, writing about what matters to them, not because of your particular subject matter, how are you navigating that? Um, with a lot of booze and daytime naps, mainly. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I will say that I think it's a privilege. That's what I think. And I have, for every time I've, like, I've felt sort of intruded upon or someone's, like... Um, I had a woman who said that um, I shouldn't become a mother um, after reading the memoir. She said that I was obviously too mentally ill to become a mother, so she really hopes I never get pregnant. <laughs> and she wrote it as an Amazon review, um, which is pretty much like the, the the most intrusive thing you could have someone have someone do. Um, and so, so that was obviously like a really negative experience. But then for that, I've also had literally it's been out for eight weeks now, and I've had hundreds and hundreds of messages from people saying thank you for reflecting my life in the story you know or this really touched me or thank you for and that's that's like what an exceptional thing to get to do as your job um and the other thing I'd say is that you know like again like a lot of what I'm interested in is all the things that women aren't allowed to speak to all the things that actually all people aren't allowed to speak to vulnerability uh mental illness sexual violence <laughs> sexual transgression um and so 
being allowed to be really open and honest about that is very liberating and actually be listened to as well you know so you're not just talking about stuff that is taboo but people will listen and engage with you and you get to have a dialogue um, and that's kind of the, the amazing stuff I think and, and I guess that is the flip side of like well, how can you do it when it's particularly scary or dangerous stuff that feels like it's making you vulnerable is that then the payoff if and when it connects is that much higher whereas if you've just written about something you didn't really give a shit about then someone go I really love this and you go well that's not me so I don't feel particularly validated by that right yeah I mean what I say about Lowborn is that even writing it legitimately changed my life like I don't think many people don't spend a year carefully investigating all of their sort of childhood complexities and trauma and I don't know if I'd recommend it to everyone but for me getting to do that completely changed my life was it therapeutic I, te- I, I, yeah, I, te- I tell you why because okay, yeah. I heard you talking about the was it is it the ACEs study or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, because I had a guy on the podcast um, called James W. Pennebaker, who like 20 years ago, is this social psychologist, did a big study where they got people for four days to come in and spend 15 minutes where the brief was, write about your most traumatic experience of your life for 15 minutes, write continuously for the 15 minutes. You can repeat stuff, try to link specific memories with how you feel then and now. And they did, people did that for four d- students came in, did it for four days consecutively. He said they were like in floods of tears. They were crying. Um, and then they did big health surveys afterwards. And their visits to the doctor for the next six months went down by half. Mm. Um, where they did studies of their antibodies. Um, their T cell um, increased their ability to fight off infection. They injected them with like uh, things that, infect them and um, they were able to fight off uh, and they've done over 200 follow-up studies and they found that if you give somebody a one inch I'm sorry one millimeter punch biopsy after they've done an expressive writing exercise about trauma they physically heal wounds in the skin more quickly oh my god that is fascinating so I just wondered what your experience was of writing about something so difficult and so where you have to like basically you're kind of like re-traumatized mm, by it. Yeah, um, it was it was genuinely transformative, actually. Um, and I suppose like a, a lot of the book is just me saying, "Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? This is horrible." Um, but actually, it was it was just really, really, especially because like <laughs> as you you guys might be able to tell, I'm not often like I'm not as verbally articulate. I find it quite hard to process like those difficult thoughts and feelings. But with writing, you get to contain contain things and shape it, and it becomes like a it becomes something you control and you you have sort of um understanding of and you you shape it and it's um so it it you give you get back control over situations you never had control of um and um and also like you just get to speak you know a lot of the issue with a lot of people who've experienced any form of trauma like there's an enormous amount of shame and guilt about it and speaking out about it and so there's something really liberating about putting it on the page and saying actually this happened here is a testament of it um even that alone is enough even without publishing it and then reaching readers who say i see what happened to you and that's terrible so um I I do I God help me if I ever write another memoir <laughs> like Lowborn again. But I, I don't regret it at all. I mean it was really it was a, a fundamentally life changing experience for me. And again, like I don't know how many accountants can say that their their end of year taxes were fundamentally life changing. So that's another beautiful thing about being a writer. That's fucking awesome. I was just um if it's all right, I know there's um 
uh, some people in the room. Uh, <laughs> it's okay if you don't have any questions. I, I don't want to. I, I know I project just naturally. My face projects a kind of level of neediness. Um, Eagerness. That makes it seem like. I'll, well, if you like, just imagine that I'll cry if nobody has a question. No, it's fine. But I was just wondering, just to give you the opportunity, does um, anyone in the audience have a question for uh, Kerry or indeed for me or about writing or anything like that? Oh, yeah! yeah. Woo! <laughs> Absolute hero. Oh my gosh! Come you on! The machine gun <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Hey, how you doing? I love organize. Go on, guys. I mean, I um, first of all, I'd say organize is an amazing. Uh, I'm allowed to do like a little plug for them, or do you have your own advertising? No, do okay. it, do it, do it, do it, do, do a big plug <laughs> so for them. Unless you're like. Unless the sentence is going to end, organise our an organi- uh, organisation who have been um, shoveling kittens into a furnace and laughing. No, I'm just sure that they do wonderful <laughs> things right now. Oh, well, forget it. Themes. Forget it then. Uh, no, <laughs> so they're, they're uh, uh, I, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but I'll give a gist. Um, they are a organ- they're, uh, an online sort of resource that will help um, workers collectivise, like unionisation, but without the sort of massive complexities of it, to band together with petitions and with also loads of support. Um, Usman, who was really involved in the Waterstones Fair Wage um, project, was really instrumental in pushing that forward and making sure that the momentum was still there. Um, and um, they just do exceptional work. Um, so the Waterstones Living Wage was that, I didn't know this before I found out about it, but um, Waterstones booksellers do not get paid a living wage. They have to have a degree, but they don't get paid a living wage. And often they're held in like really, really low, low wages for years and years and years because of a really complex promotion structure. And that seemed really wrong because Waterstones is very much a business built on the expertise and brilliance of their bookselling staff. Um, I buy all of my Waterstones sales <laughs> again. Um, but basically what I what I tend to say about like authors banding together. So in that case, we started up like a, a group letter, um, which turned out to be successful mainly because Philip Pullman signed it. Um, but um, I always just think, send the elevator back down. Whatever I could have used when I was like a marginalized writer starting out is what I will try to provide for other people trying to get into the industry. So... Um, you know, whether that's like uh, an inclusive day where they can meet agents and editors, which is obviously one of the key sort of highest gates for aspiring authors, or whether it's uh, using whatever clout you have as an author now to change publishing policies. Like, look at what resources you have and what you might have needed when you were marginalised and um, and try and apply those um, as much as possible to the industry you now work in. Um, and again, Big Up Organise, it's such a good organisation. Um. <laughs> Um, would it be would it would it be sort of oafish if I added something? I don't want to sort no, of like step you must. in, but um, <laughs> I also think it's important that authors, when they're able to, um, we have more transparent about what they're actually getting for books and mm. how much people are being paid. I put up a post where I talked about how much I got as an advance for the Ice House, which is my latest novel that came out in May. I put up the sales. I put up um, how much tax I'd paid. Um, what had gone through tills, what I was likely to get, um, 
And I shared that because I think there's a, there's a culture of silence around what authors mm. are actually making and then how much they're selling. And then, because we don't, you don't ever want to give out any bad news because it feels embarrassing. You feel like I'm, that's going to create a sort of cloud around me and the people will start to smell the doom on my career <laughs> and we won't talk. And so there's a silence. And when, where there's silence about what people are earning, I'm not sure who that serves, but I don't think it's the workers. Mm. And I think there's a lot of coy language amongst agents and editors where they'll say such and such got a nice deal. Such significant. And such yeah, exactly. A significant. So there's all this, there's what am I paying my rent with? <laughs> there's all this innuendo where people know what kind of numbers people are talking about. And then you have these like, like I'm, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm being like an asshole about a lot of very lovely people who work in the publishing industry but they're like have you read such and such oh it's great oh I loved it yeah it's great have you read such it's great it's great yeah have you done this yeah it's great there's this kind of like boosterish kind of clubbiness where everyone loves every book that's ever been released everyone loves every cover everyone loves every fucking thing that's coming out and no one's talking that book fucking tanked that person lost you you that money and, and so these things are just kind of like taken off to one side and quietly shot behind the bar and I think authors don't we don't talk about it because we're terrified that everyone else is like living it up at Club Tropicana I mean admittedly at Club Tropicana the drinks are free so <laughs> we're probably you, know, you don't need to be earning very much it's a business model that um, hadn't been thought through and I think that's why we no longer have Club Tropicana but like we don't I think authors could do with talking about what we earn I really um, agree so there's with that. visibility especially for um, I mean like for um white middle class dudes like me but like also for like especially for marginalised authors who do not ne you know people are people to know what you're getting into mm. rather than just like going come to this land of milk and honey and then you get in it's like you got one book and then we're going to fucking dump you and you didn't get very much for that I think that kind of openness will probably help authors yeah, I told, I really agree with that it's a, it's a very hype oriented, and that idea like that you'll somehow be tarnished if like you say anything slightly negative about your career, I think is a huge thing. You'll be like, yeah, you got cast with a sort of pull where people think that you're not a winner, and oh, so people aren't people aren't loving your books. Well, I uh, let's never buy them or read them again. <laughs> you are now dead to me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you can totally speak from experience, bitter, bitter experience. Yeah, and, and actually, it's been really nice talking to some authors who've had books that have just just been flushed down the loo that just yeah. did bad and they they did survive it but um it's rare that it's so it's because like doing a podcast and stuff i get to talk to authors and we forget we're being recorded right and you just, <laughs> i mean we just start having a light little natter and then people get to talk about these things and i think but i think it causes i know like the suffering of authors is not the number one kind of like social issue <laughs> on people's minds please donate I, to this appeal yeah, but <laughs> People feel sad. People have breakdowns. People's mental health is drastically affected. Mm. People, you know, I know people who've like suffered and, you know, had to, you know, all sorts of really bad stuff that is like really dark and it, then it's hidden behind shame. And I think talking about it makes us feel like, as you've said so well, like it makes us realise, God, we're like, we're all going to, we're going to die at some stage, right? And it's just night. Why hide all this stuff? Why not just talk about it? Why, like, we're not, you don't get to the pearly gates and they go, well, 
you, I see that you were really ashamed of yourself <laughs> and full of self-loathing and never told people about being insecure. So you get in. Well done. It's like you can let that stuff go. Has anyone else got a question? Anything else you'd like to ask about writing or to me or Kerry at all? Yes, please. Oh, yeah, over there. Thank you're you. an angel too. Thank I you. Know. Bless you. Thank you. This is a tough questioning gig with, with this many people, yeah. I think. Hello. Hi. Hiya. I, I haven't heard of either of your two Kerry, can you shed any light on the... Thank you, that's a great question. Can you shed uh, yeah, any light on the, it's on really the mystery of um, hardbacks? Which, again, like speaks to what we've been talking about, that there's just these Byzantine things that are the done thing, and you're expected not to question them or go, why? <laughs> Indeed, why? Um, I, have a, I, I have a theory why, but I bet you know the actual reason why. Um, I don't I don't know. It's madness. It's total madness. Who wants to carry around something like the size of two bricks in their bag and pay 15 quid for it? Um, my first novel actually came out as a trade paperback, which was like a pretend hardback because I wasn't quite important enough for a hardback. And I remember I had French flaps, which I was incredibly excited about. <laughs> I'm getting French flaps. <laughs> so, um, but basically now I have hardbacks and I think it's because um, basically I think a lot of the times the... the uh, reviewers in the more mainstream newspapers won't review something if it's in paperback, so they do it in hardback. Um, maybe it's because they make a bit of money, like certainly Lowborn, my book now, which has sold fairly well, is in hardback, and they've definitely made a bit more money because they produced it in hardback first. And uh, So I think it's like a prestige thing, basically. And also, publishing's just kind of old-fashioned, you know? Progress is real slow. I mean, what's the what's the actual reason? Now I've sort of. I, I don't know why you're like looking at me as if like, like I, I've got. The, I, I I think I, as we've kind of like talked about other people in publishing posh twats, and then you're like, well, Tim, you'll know. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. All right. You're the host. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got me, got okay, me able to so, pass the bat on. Yeah. No. My, so you're right that the margins are slightly higher for um, hardbacks than they are on paperbacks. But there's no reason for that to be true, right? That's just what they set the price at, right? <laughs> like, there's no, like, we know how economics work, right? There's a price that the book is sold at. And there's no reason why a hardback should have a bigger profit margin, except that publishing is a legacy industry. Mm. And there's stuff that's been done. I mean, the first paperbacks were 1935. Penguin paperbacks came out. Um, I mean, obviously, before then, there'd been Penny Dreadfuls and all sorts of things like that before then. But, like, peg Penguin paperbacks as a... a a sort of way that you could read quality, quote-unquote, novels, but in paperback. Didn't come out to the mid-30s when the price of paper dropped and the levels of literacy had never been higher. And just basically, it was just kind of like this time where they were like, well, finally, we can do this and, and, um, and make some dough. But there was no reason. Like, the idea... 
like when you say these things out loud, like, well, I think there's more. Sometimes people won't review something unless it appears to them in a hardback. Like, it just sounds like the kind of rights of the Catholic Church or something. It's like, well, this is like, this book is like, kind of like been consecrated and can be passed to you. Oh, it's made out of a sort of slightly floppier paper. Ah, well, the contents must be shitter. That's, but, like, that is, when you say it, that is ludicrous. Wow, stupid. And I'll say this, um, because I've got like a dog in this fight. Um, The honours came out in paperback with not, French flaps, but like an actual green cummerbund around oh, the no. thing. Oh no! I'm jealous, right? And it, <laughs> but it came out in trade paperback, and it just sold really well because people are like, "Well, I can carry this without straining my wrist. This looks like a book I'd read, right?" It just looked cool, and it was nice, and it sold a bunch, and people reviewed it. The honor, the Ice House, my second book, the second in the series, came out in hardback because they're like, well, "This is now. We know Tim that you've earned the hardback," and, and like. It's not really selling because people are like, well, what am I going to do with what am I going to do with this? This is massive. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. I don't read hardbacks. I don't I never read hardbacks. And it's like this legacy thing that's done. It's like publishing is a cargo cult, right? Like at some stage, these things worked and people generationally are copying it. And that's why Amazon and I. Uh, hate Amazon with every bone in, in my body as somewhere mm. this, this sweatshop where workers are kind of like getting back injuries and peeing into bottles right but like the but Kindle ebooks are sick man the, the technology is great like the, that's why they're killing because like it's actually convenient and good and I I don't want to say that because they're the evil empire but they are but unless publishing industry starts going you know what maybe we can like start listening to people um, and say what they want, rather than just having f- fucking like shellfish dinners and while we talk to each other about how great each other's books are. <laughs> like they're gonna get absolutely rogered by these kind of like new mm. technologies because ebooks, people are making a killing in like the in self-publishing. Mm. By like just going and publishing stuff. By the way, that the, for ages the publishing industry has said, oh no one's gonna buy this. No one's gonna buy these kind of like your Kindle romance. No one's going to buy this romance. No one's going to be interested in this. No one's going to be interested in your kind of like niche romance books about like aliens fucking. Well, guess what? Shit loads of people are and they're buying them (laughs) and people are making livings out of it. And I just wish that that wasn't going to Jeff Bezos, a man who has enough money literally to buy an apartment for every homeless person in the US. And Um. yet that says that the most, the thing we need to be doing at the moment is investing all our money in stopping putative future AIs destroying humanity. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, sorry, that was a bit of a rant in the end. Um, anyone else got anything? Because I think this will be the last question and then we'll have to go. Your, your, your point, point you're, you're saying, um, that you're, I thought you were just touching your beard. And, and like, it was great. I was like, I've got a beard as well, Tim. So like, <laughs> I, I'm of, of equal, if not more authority, the stage manager's um, stroking his beard in a, a way. It's a very handsome beard. Um, any, a, anybody else? Yes, oh, thank please. you. Um, there's a sort of um, very eager and uh, lovely looking gentleman down the oh, front. Also, excellent t-shirt. Yeah, lovely t-shirt. A real t-shirt envy, yeah. And we're going to get um, this microphone that was taken away as a kind of hint to us that we were trying to wind up. <laughs> Wrap uh, it was up, guys. Very, yeah, hello. <laughs> I, uh, that was, this has been fantastic, so thank you very much. And I apologise if uh, this is a bit heavier to end on, but you were talking about your negative experiences that you've experienced in being in publishing mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Someone in the lab who didn't like me, and now every time I have to sit down to write 
thesis to, to keep my job. Yeah. And I'm just pissed because I associate all of the negativity with that event, with mm. the thesis and papers that have come from it. So as somebody, and there's people who deal with anxiety and the negativity that people attach to certain values they attribute to, do you just have any advice to moving past, for example, somebody being as ignorant as the same? <laughs> um, I say let it galvanize you, you. Yeah, that was really that was a lovely ending actually. It's really beautiful. Um um I I I let it galvanize me. Like like it you know, like I think rage is I've, I've learned that rage is kind of can be a very very unhelpful like sort of um uh consuming emotion, but also it can really galvanize you. So let it make you make your best work. Let it, you know, absolutely give them the finger every single time you do something amazing. Um that is awful by the way. Like I mean the other thing is that I don't let that stuff so um I'm also queer, so <laughs> solidarity. Um but also like I just I will never ever let anyone um say any sort of working class slur around me now. No chavs. I once worked for a charity where someone got off a charity it was an AIDS charity dealing um, with the ramifications of poverty for people with HIV and AIDS. And a colleague of mine got off the phone and said, they sounded like the sort of person who worked in a council estate. And what's amazing is that I totally let them. Like, I just, I felt so othered that I felt like I couldn't do it. And so now I've made a real big decision that if anyone ever ever breaches the boundaries that I find are acceptable, then I will absolutely, as much as I possibly can, hold them to account to the fullest extent. And otherwise, just do a fucking great job and show them what ignorant pricks they are, I think. Um, and I, I, I mean, I don't have anything better to add than that, but I'll just <laughs> I'll say something worse, basically. No, I think... Um, if I don't, I don't want to ever come off as like I'm being like a cheesy kind of like avuncular character who's saying, but you are completely enough just for being you and who you are. You are no stage um, are um, under any pressure to prove yourself to those people or to answer anything they've got to say. You don't have to. If you never, if you spend the rest of your life like eating baked beans on toast in front of the TV with a lovely like uh, chunky knit blanket over your knees um, and don't do any more science, you are inherently valuable as a as a human being. The science that you're doing and the stuff that you're finding out and the stuff you're publishing is for you, not for them, and not to prove anything to them, not because anyone else has said to you you have to do this, not so you can show them and so you, one day like that, those things are all good and like Schadenfreude can be like great. But what I'm saying to you is like any of that achievement and any of that glory is for you, not for them. And I, I like with my I was viciously bullied at school for write for reading and for writing. Um, for, for literally for reading and I was beaten up I was I had like I was mugged at, at knife point I was held in a pub and they blocked the doors and sat down either side of me mafia style held me down while someone spoke to me across the table I like I have panic attacks I have flashbacks I have all sorts of things it was a really difficult time and it, it's very tempting to go to sort of turn into the kind of person where you go, well, fuck you, because you, you're you're a shit person, and now I get to go and have a review in the Guardian. Those things will never actually make you happy. The thing is, like, 
I love my writing and I love the people I meet. I love to get to speak to people like you and you are enough and you never ever, it, it can just make you feel like you're broken somehow and that only, if only you could finish this one thing, if only you could get this achievement, then you'll be fixed. And what I'm saying to you, like from the bottom of my heart is that um, you are always fine. You are always fine. There was, and, and whatever people do through out of ignorance or fear, um, if when it comes time that you would like to forgive them, you do that for yourself as well. For, forgiveness is the, um, I once heard it said, forgiveness is just giving up the hope of a better past. When you just go, I can't, and you let it go. I can't fucking do this anymore. I, I've got to let it go. So my feeling to you, if it doesn't sound sort of too presumptuous, is just remember you have nothing to do and you have nowhere to go. You're enough and you're perfect as you are as a human being who exists. Um, the science is just all gravy. That is all ice cream. You get to slather on top of you being a brilliant, worthwhile human being already. Um, and thanks very much for your question. Um, Kerry, thank you so much for... It's been really, really nice chatting to you. Um, thank you for tolerating hey, my... It's been my like total pleasure. Um, <laughs> and um, you have got have you did you have you still got books in the bookshop over there? Um, I still got some. I th yeah, I think there's still cool. some there. I, there was quite a few sold, but please go buy some more. Yeah. My other novels there too. So yeah, so um, Thirst is there. That's that's right. And um, Lowborn's there. And Tony um, Hogan bought me an ice cream float before he stole my ma. I did this so late <laughs> in the evening. I just I was tempted to go for a, a run for it, and I thought if I stack it now, I'll end on a bum note. So yeah, they're all they're all over there, and I think there might be one or two copies of the Ice House my novel over there if you would like one. Um, but thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you so much, thank you. folks, and everyone here. Thank you so much for being here, and I just want to wish you a wonderful festival, and I hope you have a wonderful week yeah. of writing. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> a massive latitude cheer for these guys. A thousand cuts. Wasn't that lovely? You guys are the best people. The stick to the end people are always the best people.